I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and a brand new sponsor at the top level, Kyle Quas. Very, very excited to welcome Kyle. He was already a member, but he upgraded his membership and became a top level sponsor, and so will be thanked on every show. So thank you so much, Kyle. That's really, really wonderful of you. This is show 403 for September 10th, 2012. Today's guest is Sonny Rollins in an interview recorded at the Detroit Jazz Festival just about a week ago. Thank you to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to today's show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thank you to Dave Rabel for the show's logo and Rob Grundell for the Jazz or Bust logo. As you're listening to this, I'm in Montreal, although as I'm recording it, I'm still in Ottawa. Today is September 10th, which, as it happens, is my birthday. I turned 39 years old today, the same age as Jack Benny, and the age that I will remain, in true Jack Benny style. This is I, the first birthday I can ever remember uh, where I, I wasn't with family and friends. I cannot remember another birthday in my 39 years. I had a birthday when I was in Japan the first time, when I was an exchange student, but even by then I was really pretty integrated into my host family and... You know, just and I had friends over. It seemed like a kind of a normal thing. But I'm on the road for this one, so it's a strange birthday. And uh, you know, if you want to wish me a happy birthday, I'm on Twitter at Jason D Crane, or you can email me at Jason at thejazzsession.com. And although I'm chipper right now while I'm recording this intro, I have a feeling that on the 10th, as you're actually listening to this, and it's my birthday, and I'm by myself, <laughs> I may be slightly less chipper. So feel free to keep those cards and letters coming. Uh, what else can I tell you? It looks like more or less I have my housing situation figured out for a little while. Tomorrow, on the 11th of September, I'm going to go back to New York City where I'm staying with a member of the show for a little while. And then uh, funds permitting, which is just an enormous question mark in my life these days, but funds permitting, I'm going to go to Mississippi where a friend of mine has offered to put me up for a week. And then uh, if everything works out, I'm going to go and live in Auburn, Alabama for a while. Yes, I know. I know. It's this very strange move. But the thing about Auburn is it's just a wonderful place, and there are a bunch of people there who I, I really like, and there's a place there I can stay. And while I'm there, what's going to happen is I'm going to launch uh, one all-or-nothing massive Kickstarter campaign to save the show. The idea of the Kickstarter, I'll announce the details in the next couple of weeks, but the idea will be to raise enough money for me to live for a year and not have to be panicked all the time or just to put it to bed <laughs> because uh, I've, I love doing the show. It's been a blast. I've gotten to meet a lot of my heroes and a lot of wonderful up-and-coming younger musicians, but it's going to get to the point where the the trials and tribulations of keeping it alive – begin to outweigh the joys of actually doing it. And I don't want it to get to that point. I want to, if I have to go out, I'm going to go out on top. So, uh, but I'm hoping not to go out. So I'm going to do one huge Kickstarter campaign, enough to fund the show for a year, which effectively means to fund me for a year. Uh, and if that works out, then the show will go on. And uh, I'm really hoping that it will. And I'm I'm confident that it will, because when I set a ridiculous goal last year, a thing I didn't think I would achieve, which was 100 members by the 300th show, y'all came through. So when I announce whatever this ridiculous amount of money is that I want to raise, I'm confident that people will decide the jazz session is worth having around. Meanwhile, you can still become a member of the jazz session, and that is always important. You can do that at thejazzsession.com slash join. And I hope that you'll do that. You can also join the mailing list, which is at thejazzsession.com. Just click on mailing list, 
And you can visit my other site, jasoncrane.org, for diaries from my travels and poetry and all kinds of stuff. Okay, so enough about that. Just a couple days ago, it was the birthday of Sonny Rollins, and uh, I was really, really happy to get a chance to sit down with him in person. This is his third time on the show. I think it makes him the first person to be on the show three times. Uh, His third time on the show, and the first time we ever actually did the interview in person. There... The interview, I think, is interesting, but actually, for me, the part of it that really meant the most to me was what happened after the interview, when we spent another hour talking together along with our mutual friend, Terry Hinty. And Sonny just had some incredibly beautiful things to say about life, and that's a huge word. I mean, about life, what does that even mean? He just had some really beautiful things to say about realizing his... Not only his place in the world, but realizing his attitude toward the world, an attitude not just in the sense of his state of mind, but actually his you know, his kind of orientation toward life and how he was going to uh, accept or deal with or incorporate into his being all of the things that happened to him. And I found it incredibly inspiring. I was I felt like I was there at exactly the right moment, you know, given that in my own life, I'm trying to figure out so many things and so much is uncertain about what's going to happen to me. And, you know, I'm homeless. I'm on the road. I'm completely kind of at sea in a lot of ways. But talking to Sonny, I felt like there was a way to to get a grasp on that. And I, I'm not trying to suggest that Sonny was trying to come off as any kind of guru. He He expressly was not doing that. But he's just lived enough and he's thought enough about how he wants to move through the world that he's arrived at some conclusions. And uh, I just found the whole thing very inspiring. And, I, you know, it's definitely one of those moments that has happened for me because of the show that I will for all forever be grateful for. Uh, it was really, really, really wonderful. So let's hear my conversation with Sonny, and all throughout it, we'll hear music from Volume 2 of Sonny's Roadshows recording. guest uh, once again on the show is Sonny Rollins. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for your time. Thank you for inviting me. That's my pleasure. I, I wanted to start, uh, we're conducting this interview in Detroit, Michigan, where last night you played at the Detroit Jazz Festival, and you had a lot of nice things to say about the musical uh, legacy and lineage of this city of Detroit. And I wondered if maybe you could say a few of those comments uh, here on the on the show, talk a little bit about Detroit and what it's meant. Well, when I first came to Detroit in 1955, and I was working with um, Clifford Brown and Max Roach. So at that time, I I met a lot of the musicians who were from Detroit or settled in Detroit. For instance, Yusuf Latif, who uh, 
is actually from Chattanooga, but he sort of settled in Detroit. And uh, there were so many other musicians here, and, it's, and seem, it seemed to be a very uh, vibrant city for music. It was, uh, I had an opportunity here to play with um, the great Lester Young, uh, just sitting in uh, on Woodward Avenue. They had a place there, which is very famous. All the bands came through and so on, uh, you know, back in the day, as they say. And uh, so it was it's just the place just has a lot of really emotional memories for me as far as the music and musicians, people I met here, etc. It used to be the case, I'm not sure if it is as much now, that cities had a sound. You know, there was a, if you were from Philly, there was kind of a Philly sound, a Detroit sound, a New York sound. Is there something you associate with Detroit or with a, a kind of playing or approaching the music that came out of this city? Well, I'm not quite that astute to discern a sound, but uh, the city is, you know, it's just the city, the different streets and so forth, mm. you know, that's quite uh, distinctive. But uh, as a sound, um, it probably is, but I, I, I never looked at it, I never thought of it in that way. Sure. You know, uh, <laughs> as I kind of look at... Uh, this is a maybe a, a bit of a personal question. We can we can veer off from it if we need to. But as I'm kind of looking at at uh, where I am, ar- kind of artistically in my own life, it makes me wonder with someone like you, if there was a point in your life as a saxophonist where you thought, "Am I doing the thing I I should be doing?" Did you ever have a period where you? There's kind of the famous stories of playing on the bridge. But did you have a, a period where you looked at what you were doing and decide had to make some kind of kind of decision about? yes, I'm on the right course, or I have to make some change in the way I'm approaching my craft or my art? Uh, not really. Uh, from a very early age, I knew that I was destined to be a prominent musician. Uh, this Even when I was, I was first playing with uh, my idols, uh, people like Charlie Parker and all these people, I, w- I wasn't um, uh, afraid or, you know, I, or fe- I didn't feel like, wow, I'm sh- what am I doing here? I always knew that I was supposed to be a prominent musician. That was my destiny. It's always been that way, and... Uh, you know, of course, we have, as you know, any uh, life has its uh, ups and downs. But, uh, you know, I've always been secure about what I wanted to be. And on a maybe a less grandiose level than that, has that always been true for the way you play music as well? Do you feel like you've kind of been on a, a pretty clear path in terms of your approach to the saxophone and to the interpretation of the music? Well, basically, there have been a few times. I remember one time when I thought I had hit a brick wall and that I uh, was uh, I was at a creative uh, dead end, but that lasted maybe for a couple of weeks, you know, and that that's not a usual thing. I remember that happening once, maybe twice in my whole life, sure. you know. Do you have any idea why you had the confidence that you always had? You, you mentioned not being awed by the people that you played with when you started out. Do you know, what what was it that made you feel like this is where I belong? Well, um... I think the way I was introduced to music as a child, it just all came to me very naturally. Uh, listening to my older brother play and uh, being surrounded by music uh, where I grew up with so much music. 
uh, I it was something that I just I mean I, it was such a natural thing for me to to do music. I was always felt I always felt that I I could do it, and uh, it was never a problem for me really. Never a big problem, you know, to be involved in music. It was just. It, it was something that came naturally, so naturally to me that I never sat down and really thought, well, gee, how am I going to do this or how am I going to do that? Uh, so I was just a very uh, gifted, I was gifted. So a lot of times I don't like to take... Uh, uh, you know, when people congratulate me I'm well aware that it's not so much me, it was a gift that I had. Because, uh, as I've often said, many of my uh, friends growing up, we all wanted to be jazz musicians. You know, jazz musicians were cool, they had all the girls, they were sharp, you know, and they were top. So everybody wanted to be a jazz musician, but only I had the gift of it, which I didn't earn it in a way. It was given to me. I pursued it after I realized I had the gift, but I didn't earn it. So I'm, I always feel funny when, when I'm praised too highly. You know, although uh, it, certainly it's maybe it's true that some people are born with aptitudes toward other things, to, toward particular things, like in your case, playing the saxophone. Yeah. But you, I mean, you've had an amazingly disciplined life of continuing to hone those skills, to write music, to learn songs, to perform, you know, hundreds of nights a year. It, it's not as if that gift you were given necessitated you having this career you have. I mean, you've you made the choice to do the things that you've done instead of other things Well, and really work hard. There was a time I, I liked to do um, watercolor. And I used to do watercolors, and I liked doing cartooning also. So there was a time in my life, I think, when I was in my, uh, between, in my early teens, you know, around that in my teens, when I I considered doing that. I mean, I wanted to do that, but I think both of those pursuits were sort of what you know. When I when I realized I couldn't make any money, and I got out of high school, I couldn't make any money doing uh, cartoons. I wasn't that good at, at that. Or sure. I wasn't, that good a painter. I mean, these were nice things to do, but I could make money playing music, which was also great because, as I said, I loved music and it was just as natural to me as, as painting, you know. I think I'm a good painter. In fact, I remember uh, a fellow that used to do, um, I remember Phil Bray. Phil Bray was at my house one time and he saw some painting and he was really impressed. And it was just something that I had done on a door. It wasn't really painting. I just painted something, you know. But anyway, so I know that I have talent. I, you know, I, I can't, just like music, I know I have a talent for it. But anyway, I couldn't make money at that. And, uh, so I, uh, music, you know. Thank you. 
it's interesting because on the one sense, if I didn't know who you were, you the way you talk about those things is just very matter of fact. So the, I mean there's the there's the side of you listening to you talk that's like, well yes, this is the thing I know how to do and I needed to make a living and so this is what I did. And on the other hand, I mean for most people who are at the Detroit Jazz Fest or any other jazz fest, you're Sonny Rollins for God's sake. And there's there's a certain thing that goes with that. That's a magical name in the world of jazz. So it's interesting here to hear you talk about what for many people is a a legendary, I mean a larger than life career in music in this just incredibly matter-of-fact way. I mean, to you, it it sounds like, well, this is what my job is. This is the thing that I do for a living. It's it's hard to reconcile those two things a little bit, I think, when I hear it. Well, I try not to... Uh, it would be hard to reconcile. I know sometimes when, you know, people want my autograph and all this stuff, I mean, I have to... I make sure that I don't absorb too much of this adulation Hmm. you know because you know then I couldn't live with myself if I was a person that you know the legend of Sonny Rollins I mean that's just a legend I mean uh, it really doesn't mean anything to me you know I'm just like you like Terry like everybody I'm a human being trying to maneuver through an existence and uh, I happen to uh, have some fame in this in my field and all that but beyond that it, it, it's, it, has, it has no relevance to me the mm-hmm. Sonny Rollins legend that, that doesn't mean anything to me one thing I want to mention, because this is how I got this inside information, is that there's a third person in the room, our, our mutual friend, uh, Terry Hinty. Yes. And uh, she and I were talking politics on our way over here, and she was mentioning some of the things that she reads, and I was telling her some of the things that I read, and she mentioned some of the things that, that you read in terms of progressive uh, progressive <laughs> magazines. Well, she told me. I didn't know <laughs> we can always edit this out. That's fine. Okay, right. But my my question is this: if we if this isn't too much of an expose, okay. uh, th- we've never met in person, but I've I've talked to you twice on the phone, and the last time I talked to you, uh, you were talking about how any real change that happens happens at the individual level, that people inside themselves need to make change, and that's almost the only actual way to make any any kind of. Uh, meaningful difference between the way things are now and how they could be. And so I just wonder how that kind of dovetails with the fact that I know you are very interested in kind of politics and current events and keeping up with with what's happening. Do, I mean, do you think, do we have some kind of larger responsibility to society or are we mainly tasked with changing ourselves, with navigating our own path? Well, I think at one time, my, my thinking on this has progressed. Mm. I think at one time I was, I thought that you know, we should be involved, the artists should be involved in politics and things like that, you know. Uh, that's less of a case with me now, you know. Sure. And uh, now I realize that it's the individual, you know, this is what it's about. You know, we are born, just you, you're born alone, Everybody's born alone. We each have our fingerprints are separate, unique. And we have to live our lives. We've got to figure that out. Uh, if you're a good politician, okay. I hate to think of being a good politician because I don't have too much, uh, well, I shouldn't say respect, uh, but it's just a type of, of, uh, life but it's I, that's wrong for me to say that a politician that's what he is you know gifted to do fine but anyway no in my case i thought at one time i believed that it was up to a musician to be involved in things outside of of uh, you know like environmentalism uh political action things, you know. 
And this, you know, I thought that was how it should be. I don't think that so much now. I mean, I think it's okay to do it, but I, I just mean for me. You know, I've lived that life already, and I was introduced to that as a child, and it was right. We had to uh, fight for civil rights and everything, and it's nothing. I was proud to be a part of it, and that's great. But right now, at 82 years old, I've seen that there's other vistas now, which I realize uh or for me now, not that that was wrong, but now there's something else for me. You know, not that that was wrong, or that is, so I shouldn't put it that way. It's okay to do anything, but uh, for me now, it's it's about the individual. Do you think that given the, uh, certainly, at least in your field, the stature that you have, there are ways in which maybe you could affect even more change now than you could, for example, at the time of Freedom Now Suite or even the global, well, by the global the warming. Freedom album. Suite. The Freedom Suite, I should say, yeah. Right. Uh, do you think that given your stature, you could maybe bring an even, kind of even larger presence to particular issues if you chose to take them I on? don't think so. No. I don't think so. No. Just because that's not an effective way of making change? Well, I mean, uh, I would have to devote a lot of time to it, and it's mm. not something that I could devote that much time to. Sure. You know, I mean, I'd have to open up an office uptown like Al Sharpton <laughs> and have the Sonny Rollins <laughs> Freedom Group and something like that. I mean, I don't have that time or the energy to do that i would totally support that organization i just want to let you know right now so the the check is in the mail if you decide to open up the sunny rollins freedom group well i will be the first i'll be the first donor yeah well that's very nice to say that but i don't i i don't think it would be productive for me to do that you know i don't i don't have that that desire i mean it's nothing i think i could accomplish with that except uh Everybody knows my views, and I'm just a musician. I mean, what good is it? Would it do to, uh, you know, to say, "Oh, well, down with uh, Paul Ryan" or something? I mean, it's 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 really all this stuff is taken on a lesser. I, I enjoy looking at politics because I've grown up just, but it's not serious to me anymore. I mean, it's, well, gee, I'm not explaining this right. It is serious on a certain level, but for me, it's not serious anymore. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs>
So to ask you a positive question and stop grilling you about politics, for God's sake, um, can you talk about the things that you that you are focused on these days, particularly musically? Well, musically, um, I don't know. Musically, I've, I've always let music happen to me, mm. you know. So whatever happens, I'm sort of, I have a pretty open mind, you know. So, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not, but I'm interested in lots of kinds of music. And uh, as the opportunity arises, I would go in a certain direction, you know. But uh, I'm, I'm, right now, it's kind of difficult to do that. Uh, being a band leader, I have to sort of perfect a certain product that I have to sort of own right now. But uh, no, I don't know where, wherever music leads, I'm for it, you know. And if anything really comes in my mind strong enough, I'll make changes in that direction, you know. Sure. I just read this really wonderful book called Kaiso about the origins of the origins of and kind of the political uses of calypso music, mm-hmm. and uh, it was it was really really fascinating, and it, it led me to wonder since I knew I was going to be talking to you, and I I just finished this book to ask about uh, you're obviously famously associated with that uh, style of music also, and ask how it first kind of came into your ears and uh, what it was that attracted you. Well. I had, you know, my family's in the Caribbean. Sure. Uh, a, a large part of my family. And uh, growing up, I heard that music in my house as well as other musics, you know. I heard uh, my brother was sort of a European classical. That's where his his desires were, and he, so I used to hear him practicing, you know, violin, uh, um, European music all the time. Uh, And I heard uh, there was a guy named Gerald Clark, Gerald, Gerald Clark and his Caribbean serenaders. It was really a top-notch calypso band, and uh, I based heard... in the states, based in the no, United States, or no, based no. somewhere else. Okay, they, I don't believe so. Okay, they may have. I believe they was. They may have been from Trinidad. Okay, uh, I think a lot of those calypso guys were from Trinidad. Sure, but you know that region. You know, I, I'm not sure, but I know that. Uh, no, they they weren't they weren't in the states, and then of course I heard a lot of jazz. I heard Fats Waller. Fats Waller was sort of, I would say, the main musical influence that I heard, which really struck me, you know. But I heard a lot of this other music. I heard a lot of big band music, uh, Louis Jordan, blues music. Everything. And uh, my mother used to play this Gerald Clark ca- uh, Calypso his um, and the Caribbean Serenaders. Uh, they're really great. I mean, those guys really had it going on, you know. And well, there was a lot of good Calypso bands, but um, well, I've heard a lot of records, but I, they had really great group. Anyway, um, so I heard a lot of that, you know, and that was it. So I heard everything. I was really fortunate, you know, to hear all these things happening. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. That's our show for tonight. And uh, we appreciate your coming to see us. Arigato gozaimashita. Uh, Domo.
I got to present Mr. Consciousness, Consciousness. Come on. Russell Malone. Sammy Figueroa. Kobe Watkins. Bob Crenshaw. Sonny Rollins. And he got to design my star. Say more about Fats Waller, and maybe say a few words about about who he was. I don't want to assume that listeners of my generation oh, oh, oh. or younger maybe not even know well, who Fats Waller. Was. He was well. sort of like a stride pianist, and uh, he used to. I think his teacher was uh, James P. Johnson, was also another great stride pianist, and these guys. Well, James P. used to make um, piano rolls, uh, which in those days you had to play a piano where you had these rolls which played by themselves, and then I think the keys would be going down. Well. Sure. Right, you know what that is. Uh, a very primitive sort of technology today with the disc going around, cylinder right. going around. Anyway, so James P. was a, was one of the top uh, stride people. Uh, and I, I understand Fats used to study with him. But Fats Waller was, you know, he was, his. I mean, his playing really got to me, you know. And he also, he was a very... Um, he was the uh, musician entertainer. You know, he he played and he sang, and he and he and he had a lot of these uh, humorous. He was a humorous guy, you know, really funny stuff that he. But the music was the depth of the music was there, you know, and uh, anyway. I heard a lot of him when I was growing up, uh, his records, and then uh, we also used to listen to the radio, and um, so I would hear uh, Fats Waller on the radio, then I'd also hear the uh, uh, big bands that would come into New York to at the Apollo Theater, and uh, we would hear that on the radio. So I was I was really very fortunate. I heard a lot of a lot of great music, but I really love Fats Waller, you know. Can you are there things that you can point to? I also as it turns out I'm a big fan of Fats Waller. Yeah, and great. uh I'm wondering if there are things you can point to you feel like in your music that show some of that that stamp, some of that influence. Well, I mean his 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 um, energy, I mean, to me, when Fats was playing, it was, you know, I mean, he got in the zone, as they would say these, these days. And, you know, this is something which I try to get from myself and the people I play with, you know, I mean... Don't is we're not going backwards now. We're going forwards, and uh, Fats really, you know, he had he had that great energy about him, you know, and uh, I guess in a way I I uh, I've gotten that from him, you know, and I'm glad you used the word entertainer also. Because I think sometimes that word is almost has a pejorative quality to it these days, sure. where people don't, you know, they say, "Oh, I don't want to be a showman" or whatever. Right. right. But I don't think there's anything wrong with entertaining a group of people who've paid money to come see you. And at, like you said about Fats, I mean, the the entertainment value was there, but the music was also the music there. Was there. 
definitely. Do you feel like that's uh, that's something also maybe that you've taken from Fats, that idea that you put on a show for the crowd but to keep the music intact? <laughs> you see, well, now that's a tough subject because I, 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 I mean, uh, Dizzy Gillespie was an entertainer in, a se- in this sense we're talking about. Sure. And so was, of course, the great Louis Armstrong. Sure. Um, but I'm, I don't think I'm that, I'm not quite, I haven't gone quite that far, but I don't, you know, I, I don't denounce the entertainment value in, in, in the music, you know, but it's, it's a thin line. You can't do, you can't, uh, become too much of an entertainer because then you're forgetting the music. I mean, in my case, I have to be very, it's, it's a very thin line. Uh, it's a very thin line that you have to walk. However, uh, I have to ask people, listen to me, do they see any entertainment value or are they just listening to the music? I don't know. Well, I think, I don't, I didn't mean, uh, I think I did it poorly. I didn't mean to suggest necessarily that you were out there cracking jokes as much as that when you're, that when you're on stage, you're aware of the fact that there are people out there listening. It's not just a purely self-indulgent oh, no, no, activity, but you're sure. actually interacting with the crowd, even if it's, ju- you know, even if it's on a purely musical oh, level. Oh, sure. Oh, no, definitely. Oh, no. I'm very, I'm very respectful of that. And, uh, uh, I used to go to the Apollo Theater every week, so, I feel the the audience is really king, and it's up to us to reach the audience. It's not up. And when people say, "Oh, there's a good audience," well, maybe, but it's up to the entertainers or the artists to play for the art to make to bring the audience in. You know, it's not whether you have a good audience or not. So, um, um. I'm, you know, I'm very respectful of that whole, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the masks of the smiling and then the sorrow, this kind of stuff. You know, I hate to, I mean, I, I hate to go on, I'd like to go on, I'd like to have the curtain open up and then, you know, this kind of, I'm very much aware of that. Mm. You know, that this is a presentation. You see, it's not just, well, here's a bunch of guys sauntering out on stage, you know. I'm, I've been brought up in that thing, so I know that's very important to me. Because of my age, everything I know about the Apollo I've read or heard, uh, and uh, although obviously it still exists, but not in the way that we're talking oh, yeah. about now. Yeah, yeah, uh, still and one of the things that's legendary about it, at least in all the stories that you hear, is is the crowds. I mean, that if they loved you, they loved you, and if oh, they hated yeah. you, they'd let you know. Was that your experience when oh, you were in definitely. the crowds? Oh, no. Oh, no. I've seen them embarrass some uh, performers uh, mercilessly, you know. And I'm happy to say that I was able, I played the Apollo. And they accepted me, you know, so that was great. I mean, I felt, <laughs> wow, okay, you know. At what point in your career did you first play the Apollo? Do you remember? <sighs> I don't remember exactly. Uh, it, let me see. It was probably, could have been the 50s. Okay. Yeah. And do you remember any of the people that you saw there when you were going to the Apollo? Weekend oh, I saw everybody there. I saw uh, Jimmy Lunsford, uh, Billy Eckstein, Coleman Hawkins, uh, Erskine Hawkins, Billy Holiday, uh, Tiny Bradshaw. Wow. All the bands would come through for a week, and we'd be there every time. Ben, and if it was a good band, Lionel Hampton... If it was a band that we really liked, we'd go back, you know, more times, you know. So we were in school and we'd go after school and then, uh, on Saturday, you know, 
we'd also go. Was there dancing at the Apollo, or was it all seated? No, no, it, it was a theater. Okay. Yeah, but it was quite a, it was quite quite an institution. You know, it was where where I sort of learned. You know, we, well, we went. We heard so many great people there. You know. Yeah, I'm not sure any similar thing exists. Well, now, there used offers... to be a place in Detroit. They had these places all over. There used to be the Paradise Theater in Detroit, which was like the Apollo of Detroit. Mm. They used to have a place in uh, Philadelphia, I think it was the Earl Theater. They used to have a place in D.C., I forget there was a place in Chicago, the Regal Theater. They were all that type of places where the big bands or little bands or artists would come in for a week, a week stint, you know. So um, there were similar places around the country. Sure. a lot with my grandparents, which is how I first got introduced to jazz. And I remember my grandfather telling me, uh, this was in Western Massachusetts and in Lenox, and my grandfather telling me about, you know, going to this place called the Crystal Ballroom where all the big bands would come through and you could dance. And one of the things I was most jealous about was that he got to actually hear the bands the way they really sounded. I mean, the only thing I've ever heard of, you know, the Ellington or Basie or Lunsford bands from back in that era are recordings when the fidelity is... You know, has a lot to be right, right, right. <laughs> a lot to be desired, sure. uh, and I I just think it must have been, and obviously you can testify to this, just an amazing experience to be confronted with the full sound. Oh yeah, of one of those bands. Oh yeah, no, I I, I never forget the theme song of the Apollo. You know, when in the Apollo, after after um, after the show, they'd have movies. They'd have a movie, a B movie. You know and the Three Stooges or something, you know. And then the band, and then, you know, to get light, and then the band would play this theme song, you know, of, of, of uh, I, I May Be Wrong. And um, it was a great moment, you know, when you heard the band back there, you know. So, yeah, I know what you mean. It, it, it's something special about it. Mm. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the other things that are coming up for you in uh, in 2012? Are you on the road quite a lot more this summer uh, or this year? I'm not sure, but I'm I'm taking engagements, so I guess I'm uh, uh, I don't know exactly, but I'm doing concerts. I know I'm going to uh, Europe this fall. And we usually go to Europe, do a concert tour in the fall. Sure. And uh, and then we came from Europe. We do some festivals over in Europe in the summer. So we've done those. And now we're uh, going to Europe in October and do some European cities. And, uh, you know, the same old thing. Um, 
and I'm practicing and writing music all the time. That's what, that's a constant. So, you know, these are the, yeah, I might be playing there or concert. You said, oh, I saw this concert. Well, great, but my life is doing it. The constant is practicing and that's what I do, you know. Do you approach writing as a, a daily practice the same way you approach no, practicing the horn? No, 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 no. I I write inspirationally. Mm. You know, if I hear something, or sometimes if I'm playing, and I, well, I I write things that I need to as as rudimentary exercises also. But those things can also turn into a piece of music, you know into a song so uh but um you know that's 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 all i'm not a uh that that's how i compose you know all with the piano i can play sit down but uh um it mainly comes through my saxophone you know and uh i'm thinking in terms of what would sound good on the saxophone you know what is your practice routine like in terms of the horn? Well, these days it's very loose. I I just make sure I get in a certain amount of hours. These days I would say if I get two hours of, of practice in, then I'm satisfied. You know, I mean, that's about all I can handle these, these days, you know. Uh, Except like now when I'm out on the road, you know, sure. I can't practice, but then I'm performing, which is the supreme practice. That's when you really learn things and learn what to do and how to, how to do it and what not to do and what to do, you know. But in lieu of that, of being out on the road like guys used to do all the time, which I can't physically do, and guys don't do that. I mean, it's physically too much for me anyway. Uh, I practice at home, you know. But playing before an audience, that's the optimum, you know. Because of the feedback it involves, or yeah, because of the, the space feedback. it puts you in? Yeah, and you have to think. You're thinking, and like we said earlier, you're playing for an audience. So you're you're automatically raised you you you're mentally you're raised up to a high level, and the interaction with the audience and and the whole thing. So that's where you really can advance uh, or or find out what you need to do or what you should do. You see? Sure. Listening to you, you talk about uh, even just the way you approach self-improvement, musically or otherwise, I'm, I'm curious, have you ever had a anything like a meditation practice or some way that you've kind of dealt with the the mental or interior life outside of how you express it through your, your horn? Well, you mean my yoga practice and all this stuff? Sure, actually, which is something I don't know anything about, so I'd be happy well, to know. Well, yeah, I, 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 uh, I studied... Uh... Yoga. I was became very much interested in yoga, and uh, some of these um, uh, practices uh, back in the fifties. And 
I guess that's that I I'm loath to draw a connection between my music and that you know but for for what reason why well, are you because I, I I don't know I don't know if it's I guess it must have but you know I'm I'm sort of to say oh gee I I I had a beautiful meditation and then I went out and I played and to me that's sort of you know gilding the gilding the lily is sure yeah yeah I mean you know that's I don't know I don't know where my music comes from anyway when I play I try to have a blank mind so I don't know what I'm doing that's the whole point I have a blank mind so the music plays me so I don't you say so I, I'm not going to say well gee I I was a nice guy today or I was a bad guy today and that came out in my music it probably does in some way but I don't I don't want to draw the line because I don't know like when I studied yoga people said I was in India when I came back guys said oh gee well well how did this uh, yoga affect your music well I don't know I wasn't doing music I was doing yoga you know, my music is something else. I mean, it, I'm sure they're connected, but, uh, you know, in sure. some way, but I don't know how. How do you, to go back to this idea of the, and we're almost uh, kind of drawn to a close here, but to go back to this idea of the blank mind, is that something you, do you have to do something to kind of get to that place as you walk out on stage, or is there some exercise or just something you keep in mind? No, no. In fact, it's just, it's, it's 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 not keeping anything in mind. Mm. When you practice and you rehearse, and I practice at home and to uh, learn a piece of music or whatever, or with the band we rehearse a piece of music. Okay, once we learn it, then that's it. Then then it's learned. Then when I go on stage, then I want to forget it. I mean, I do forget it. I do forget it. I mean, well, no, that's not the right. I don't forget it. I know it already, so therefore, I don't have to think about it. So it becomes just about reacting in the moment, exactly. rather than having to plan each moment. Right. Then it's just letting whatever happens happen. That's the essence of real improvisation, and. uh it's really great because I i mean, I've told this story a lot, so I feel funny telling it again sometimes. Uh, I've thought up little things to play while I'm on stage, you know. And I've thought, oh boy, if I played this, oh, this is a, a, a nice uh, pattern, I could play something. And... Uh, you know, then people would think, boy, Sonny's really clever. Listen to what he played. But I can't do that because the music is going by too fast. And you can't think and play at the same time. I've tried that. I've tried to, oh, gee, I'm going to play this little riff, and boy, it's going to be... I can't do it. The music is happening too quick. Sure. And once you think about it, then... The, the the moment is past, and you're messing up the free flow. Yeah, the drummer Barry Elshul said on this show once, "If you think if you're thinking, you're late." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which seems to be what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't think. You just have to let the music play itself. And is that where the surprise comes from for you? Yes. I, I, yeah. Sure. I, I, on occasion, I've surprised my, myself with um, things that I play. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's what the... I mean, but I'm not looking for surprises. I mean, I'm, you know... I, I mean, I, I don't know exactly how, how you mean uh, the surprises. Uh, Do things happen that there was no way for you to anticipate? 
Yeah, yeah, because I don't know what's going to happen. Sure. That's when I'm really, see, when you're really improvising and things are really happening and you have no other problems with anything else going on, a bad read or a bad piano play, anything. When the when all of these elements are in place, then the real improvisation takes place and then you can really go deep into that place that this stuff comes from, you know. And I don't know where it comes from. It comes from, I guess, everything you do in your life, you know. But uh, I've had a few experiences in music, and that's really great. The stuff is just happening, you see, and I'm a spectator. So most of the time, that's the process. Sometimes it, it really plays out to its peak, you know. My guest is the saxophonist Sonny Rollins. Uh, it's, as always, such a, a joy and a pleasure to talk to you. I thank you for taking the time to do it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really... Uh, I want to thank you for your uh, Obama Rollins... Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was pain <laughs> that was yeah. one of the that was one of the show's high points. I have to say, yeah, that, that, <laughs> that was very uh, uh, funny at the time. Then, of course, I didn't meet uh, the president. You know, yeah, later. yeah. Well, I'd still pick you for vice president. I'd pick you for president. Who am I kidding? Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> and I don't want to be in politics, though. So I don't blame you. Right, you know, this 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 is a. A funny feel that, you know, it's, it's hard enough. I'm trying to get away from, you know, having to, lying and all this stuff. I mean, this is where I'm trying to, a politician, that's what he does constantly. Sure. Right. It's just like television. Now, I'm, I, at home, I don't watch television, but here I'm watching television since I can't listen to the radio. And these ads on television with, it's so much lying. This is what gets to me and what I can't take it, you know. The and it images, assumes the worst of its audience also. It assumes that they have no information and no way to make any decision. That it's just okay to lie to them because they don't it's know It's okay anybody. to lie to them. Yeah. And I think that has a deleterious effect on everything in society. Because you can't just lie and lie and it's okay to lie. I mean, unless you believe it's okay. I don't believe it's okay to to lie. Sure, we would never tell our kids that, for example. We would never right. say to your child, it's I just okay lie about lie. anything you want to. Yeah. Right, no, exactly. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's not, it's against the rules of the universe. You know, we do, We can't control the, that's a universal rule. Don't do that. I agree. So, uh, when TV, I can't, it, you know, yeah, that right. drives me nuts. <laughs> you, you and me both. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much. It's been a real pleasure. I thank you for your time. Thank you very much, and nice to meet you finally.
That's music from Sonny Rollins and Volume 2 of Sonny's Roadshows series. My thanks to Sonny Rollins and also to Terry Hinty for making that happen, and to the folks at the Detroit Jazz Festival for uh, getting me there so that I could have that opportunity. My thanks to you for listening. Please do become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join. This is The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The show is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Kyle Quas. Thank you again, Kyle, for uh, upgrading your membership. I really, really appreciate that. And now please get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.